Open your Bibles with me, please, to uh, to First Samuel chapter fifteen. First Samuel chapter fifteen. We are here, hopefully by God's grace, to finish up this uh, this chapter. I've put it off long enough, yes. and uh, so we're gonna we're gonna look at the, the this. Uh, we're gonna read it, and then we're gonna go somewhere else and preach something else. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, verse 24. Let's let's pick it up there in verse 24. I think that'll give us enough uh, of the context to understand the end of this chapter. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 24 of First Samuel. Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord." And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and and, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given, uh, given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. And so Samuel turned back, from, uh, turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came, to, uh, came my translation says, cheerfully. I think the LSB says uh, in chains. We'll get to that shortly. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Those are key words, by, by the way, before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. Father, we, we, um, we thank you, God, for the clarity that your word brings to us, God, about who you are. Uh, Lord, I, I don't want to present you in a way, God, that's not accurate or true. And so, Lord, I ask for your help. You might use, Lord, the, the noise that I speak, God, to communicate perfectly who You are. That through all the things, Lord, that are said, God, Your Word would shine above all the rest. You filter out all the chaff, all the unnecessary things, and Lord, that the good stuff just might remain. That it would get right down inside of us, Lord, change the way we think. And Lord, we, we, don't, want to just, we don't want to just satisfy some intellectual curiosity about these things. God, we, we, we truly want to to be different. We want to think rightly about who you are. And Lord, how you, how you feel about things, Lord, is important. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us. We, we need you. We need your aid. Open our eyes, Lord, to reveal great truths from your law. Lord, you are good and you do good. and You have given us, Lord, this good word to instruct us. May you be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you, you guys that have been here for the last few weeks, uh, you, you, you may remember the title. I titled this whole chapter, uh, Mission Disobedience. And we'll actually get back to that 
shortly, but I want to continue on in this, uh, this, this text here, beginning in verse 24 and following. Uh, but that, that is the title, if you're taking, taking notes, Mission Disobedience uh, Part 3, for those of you, again, who are taking notes. Uh, some, some years ago, I was invited to, uh, to do a, a wedding in, in Raleigh. Now, when my wife and I first got married, I first started seminary, and I was uh, just, uh, just excited that someone would invite me to do a wedding. And so, so this, was, uh, this was like a, sort of an acquaintance of ours. And I said, sure, I'll do the wedding. So they gave me an address. I didn't know the name of the, the, the church or where we were meeting, but they gave me an address. And so I showed up at the scene of the crime, and, um, and it was actually a Unitarian Universalist uh, church. And now the people that I was doing the wedding for were not there, but it was just a facility that was big enough for the, to, to accommodate them there. But I had a few minutes before the, before the service started, and so I went in, went in the church, and, and they had some literature. And of course, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to pick it up and start reading some of the literature. And uh, then one of the, the members came up, saw me reading some of the literature, and I started talking to her and stuff. And, and as I was, I was listening to her and reading some of the literature, it, 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 was, it was clear, it was clear that it really, it really didn't matter what they believed about a God. I mean, everybody was going to be saved anyway in their, in their thinking. Uh, listening to her and reading some of the literature, literature their, their God was sort of this sort of this squishy, malleable thing that was evolving, you know, or at least their understanding. As I was talking to her and asking her things like, well, how do you, how do you know these things about God? Well, it was, it was all about their experience, so to speak, you know, th- th- that, that kind of idea. Uh, God was sort of this, uh, sort of this, uh, some of you remember Silly Putty? Uh, the younger people may not remember silly putty, but you know it's this little squishy stuff. You can just form into whatever whatever shape you you, you want it to be, and and it really really had nothing to do with the God of the Bible at all, did it? Nothing, nothing to do with the God of the Bible. God's not like that. God's very different from that. He's not the he's not the the God who can be molded by man's imagination. I mean, God's so unstable that he's hardly a God at all. I mean, he he he, he sort of becomes this. This ever-changing thing sort of invented in the, in the minds of small little men. But our God isn't like that. Our, our, our God speaks to us and reveals Himself to us. Where? In, in His Word. And His words mean something. His words communicate something about, about who He is and what He's like. We, we ended last week defending the truth that, that God is unchangeable, right? That God is immutable, we say, in theology. And I, and I hope that I showed you sufficiently from the, from the clear teaching of Scripture, our God does not change. He does not change. His plans don't change to His praise. His character doesn't change. His, his gifts and calling do not change. His purposes don't change. He, he doesn't increase or, or decrease. I mean, think about it. You, you just can't improve on perfection. God is perfect. You, you can't affect Him with anything outside of Him, right? He, he acts. He, he never reacts. He plans. He establishes. I mean, this is, this is God. I, the Lord, do not change, He says. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. James tells us there, there, there is no variation or shadow of turning in Him, right? He's a straight line in the midst of a crooked world, right? This is God. God is unchanging. And yet we have here in our text what we would call maybe an apparent contradiction to that truth. He is the God who regrets and yet has no regret. (laughs) 
an apparent, and I say it's an apparent contradiction because there are no contradictions, right? It's only an apparent contradiction. Remember, we start with a clear teaching and we want to interpret other passages in light of that. And this is what I hope to do today. We started here in this whole chapter with this mission of death. This mission of death given to Saul the king. And then we looked at the priority of obedience with Saul who, who failed miserably and now the kingdom is being torn from him, right? And so we come to this next little section that, I, that, I, that I've called the trouble of regret or the trouble of repentance. And let me just read just to kind of highlight a couple of verses to, to begin our minds to think about this here in the text. So go back to, to verse 11, first of all, verse 11. Uh, to get context, context verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Go to verse 35, that's the very last verse, verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And here, here's the, the wrench in the works, if you will. Verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So those are the three kind of verses that I want us to wrestle with just a little bit. So, so this chapter, I think, pictures both the Lord and Saul, by the way, repenting, or God regretting and Saul repenting. And there's trouble, I think, with each of those. The Lord's repentance is, or, or, or His regret is sort of paradoxical, if you will. And, and Saul's, uh, Saul's repentance what, it's superficial, I think. I want us to look first of all, let's, let's deal with this first. Let's, let's look first of all at Saul's repentance. And this is found in verses 24 to 31. Let me kind of walk through this, the flow of the author's thought here to kind of, to kind of get a, an idea of what's going on. Uh, this is, if you will, Saul's reaction to the Lord's rejection. Uh, there are three requests by Saul and then three responses by Samuel. Saul's first request is found in verse uh, 24 and 25. Again, to get context, let's go to verse 23. Or excuse me, uh, let's just start in verse 24. Uh, you see the rejection there in verse 23. Because you have rejected the Lord, uh, He has also rejected you from being king. Then verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I had transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I, feared the, uh, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Then you see Samuel's refusal in verse 26. And Samuel said to him, I will not return with you, for, I have rejected the for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You have a second request there in verse 27. It says, As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Um, um, sort of a, uh, if, if you will, uh, an, an act of uh, contrition, uh, sort of an act of, of uh, uh, at least a visible act of some kind of uh, sorrow over, over at least the consequences of his actions. Verse, uh, verse uh, uh, 28 is um, uh, Samuel's interpretation of those events. It says, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. You have a third request in verse 30, and then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. 
And then, of course, you see Samuel's compliance in verse 30, 31. So Samuel turned, after, turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. With Saul, now listen, with Saul, his, his repentance uh, uh, should, should have involved a, a, a real and honest facing of his sin. But I, I'm convinced from, from this scripture that he still doesn't fully understand the great offense that he's committed against God. Saul's repentance, I think, really is sort of a, a non-repentance. Sort of a, you know, I got caught, here's the consequences, now I've got to fix this so I can just go back to normal life. In verse 24, he seems to acknowledge that he's done some wrong, but, but when he moves to his, his request in verse 25, listen to what he says, Please forgive my sin, return with me, and let me worship Jehovah. Right? Now, now remember, keep this in context, Agag's still alive. Yeah. Remember, all the animals that they took, all those, uh, those, those animals, they're, they're still alive. Remember, Samuel came, he heard, their, their, the, they heard the oxen, he heard the sheep, they're, 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 all, they're all still alive. It all seems, if you will, too easy. Right? It, it, seem, it seems to indicate that he still doesn't fully understand his sin. Verse 26, Samuel repeats the Lord's evaluation that he gave him in verses 10 and 11, and then Samuel's words again in verse 23. As if to say... Were you not listening, Saul? Were you not listening? Things can't get back to normal. You just can't turn back the the clock and act like nothing happened. (laughs) Saul thinks that he can simply go back to the way things were. There's no real brokenness that said, Lord, I submit to your judgments. I'm willing, Lord, to give it all up. I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things if I can be right with you. That's not what it's about for Saul. Hmm. I mean, I'm just just pause here for just a moment. It seems like a very contemporary problem, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, how many pastors have we known that have clearly disqualified themselves through their sin, stand in a pulpit, weep and mourn over their sin, and then a week or two later, they're right back in the pulpit? Yeah. yeah. It seems Samuel just wants to get back to work as quickly as possible. And if that wasn't enough, you get to verses 27 to 29, this sort of solidifies the decisiveness of Saul's rejection. Saul grabbed the the robe of Samuel, sometimes signifying, if you will, a supplication, a a request. But but here's an opportunity for a visual illustration of Saul's final and full rejection. Now, sometimes hard-hearted people need you to illustrate it for them, right? They need a visual aid. And Saul's pleading and blaming the people, his appeals to worship. I mean, like God needs Saul to worship him. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Everything in this universe points to the glory of God. What does God need with Saul worshiping Him, right? That's what He wants to do. Uh. Even his garment tearing could not reverse God's judgment. God had said it, he will perform it. In Saul's third request, I think it reveals some important clues about Saul. Verse 30, uh, Saul, Saul seems to be more concerned about how things look. <laughs> Saul, Saul's words expose his priorities, if you will. I mean, there's sin, but listen, there's also politics. Do you understand? Yeah, I mean, it would be political suicide for the king to have an open division with Samuel. Yeah. And when we have to keep up appearances here, even though I've been rejected by God, let me still be received by the people. Let me save face. Let me preserve my dignity, my pride. Let me retain the esteem of men. I mean, that's important to Saul. 
To be esteemed by man seems to be a priority, uh, more of a priority than to be reconciled to God. I mean, he doesn't want to be dishonored before the people. Think about it. He wants to, to keep his reputation among men. No matter what happens with his relationship to God, right? He, he might say, I know I've offended you, God, but let the people see me uh, with Samuel. Let, let me and Samuel still, still before, come before the people so that I can save face in some way. Jesus spoke of people like that in John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed on Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And folks, let us be careful. Let's not throw too many stones. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's not throw too many stones. I mean, isn't that just like us? Well, I mean, we've stood among those who love the praise of men more than the pleasure of God. We too don't always see the immediate priorities. Right? I remember uh, some years ago, uh, Tanya and I were living in, in Ashboro, and I, I, uh, I was kind of trimming some limbs off some of the trees in our yard and got a little six-foot step ladder, one of those, uh, one of those step ladders that's really not uh, worth stepping on, and uh, one of those uh, lightweight sort of whatever that polymer uh, stuff is. It's, it's, it's lighter than it needs to be, but I'm up on this ladder, and my wife's holding the thing for me. Right? Not that I need her because I'm a man, but, uh, but uh, she's holding the thing for me. And we hear the phone ring inside the house. Don't may remember the story. Uh, and so she goes into the house, and you know, my first thought, I'm, I'm a man. I can, I can finish this without my wife holding the ladder. And so you know, I, I, I braced myself against the tree, and I went to go crank the, uh, the, uh, the chainsaw, and it cranked up just fine. But when that happened, the ladder went one way. And I threw the chainsaw, by the grace of God, another way, and Bob came a-tumbling down. And in a weird way, I somehow I got my leg tangled up in the, in the parts of this, uh, this stepladder. And, and I'm lying there on the ground. And, and, and my, thought, my first thought was not to check on my broken bones or, or, or where my severe wounds are. My first thought was... Did my neighbors see? <laughs> I'm looking around to, to preserve my own dignity in the moment to see, to see if, 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 you know, if anybody else saw what just happened. Now, certainly my wife didn't see it because she didn't come running out. She wasn't in that concern, concern. Listen, deeper still, we sin against our holy God in countless ways. And many times the first thought is not on how have I offended God or how can I make this right with God but how can I hide this from my wife? Or how can I hide this from my husband? Or how can I hide this from my church? Or how can I, 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 I get out of this as quickly and painlessly as possible so that I can get back to normal? Right? Listen, we, we, we sometimes we have these spiritual broken bones and open wounds and we want a band-aid for our ego. I mean, we're more afraid that church members will find out who we really are. We're more worried about personal reputation or our business may be affected or our family will be hurt. And all those, listen, may have some legitimacy on some level, but there's something of far greater importance to us as believers. And that is that we need to be reconciled to God. That's the priority. We've offended our God when we sin. Hmm. We have to do business with our Maker, don't we? Sin, sin, listen, even as a believer, greatly affects our fellowship with God. 
I mean, we can't use the great doctrines of justification by faith or the perseverance of the believer as an excuse to continue in a willful pattern of sin against God. We can't do it. Hmm. We've offended sometimes, right? The one who's picked us, the one who's saved us. It can't be business as usual. We can't just keep coming to church on Sunday and living like nothing is wrong when everything is wrong. Paul asked the church of Rome, Shall we sin the more that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? He says. God had picked Saul for a, for a temporal task of being king. He, he picked him out of his own good pleasure and sovereign choice. Now, I mean, not by any merits in Saul, certainly. He picked him from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. Saul, Saul couldn't now just choose his own path. He couldn't follow his own small mind. Now his life options and his leadership options were, were limited by the leadership of God Himself. He couldn't just say, I'm the king. I was picked by Jehovah, the great king of the universe. I can lead and live however I want. No, you can't do that. And listen carefully, church. You've been chosen, if you're a believer, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Out of all the people of the earth, God chose you and saved you out of of some mysterious grace in Himself, not by any merits of our own doing. And and now our life options, our, our choices, our decisions, our words, our actions, our loves are limited by Him, right? They're limited by Him. And when we walk outside those limits, we we must have a real brokenness that is willing to receive whatever the Lord decides for us. And God is good, isn't He? (laughs) And the path that He's chosen for us is good. Don't don't think that's a bad thing. And, and, And our life options as Christians are good. God has freed us. Think about this. God has freed us to live in the good and protective boundaries that He sets for us. And it's never good to, uh, to disobey the voice of the Lord. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's just never good for us. And, and don't deceive yourself to think otherwise. Oh, and listen, when we sin, our greatest priority is not to maintain our dignity. But to, it's not to keep our jobs. It's not to, to quickly get back to business as usual. But our greatest priority is to be restored to fellowship with the one we've ultimately offended, which is God. Well, I hope you see that that Saul's repentance is a superficial repentance, right? It's simply a reaction that he got caught and now he's having to to suffer the consequences. I think that's clear from the text. But now we we need to deal with the Lord's regret or non-regret. So I'm going to ask Pastor Eric to come up and take over. But I think, don't you see the trouble? You remember my title, The Trouble with Regret. Don't you see the trouble here? Or at least the the danger or the possibility of trouble. There's an apparent contradiction in the text. Here in this chapter, there are two different statements about the Lord's regret or the Lord's repentance. You have verse 11. The Lord regrets that He made Saul king over Israel. This is a regret, if you will, over His will or His deeds, and it's not over some sin in God. God can't sin, right? You understand that. But I want to start with verse 29 because, again, I want to establish the baseline. I want to establish the truth by which we're going to understand verse 11 and verse 35. Verse 29 says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Again, this is is Samuel. This is the text. This is God Himself establishing God's immutability. God's 
unchanging character, his unchanging person. His character is established, and I think we have to start here. The glory of Israel. There's a title for you. I love that. It's a beautiful title, isn't it? It, it, Israel is what it is because the Lord has made them that way. God picked them. He is what shines most about Israel. Uh, They're they're not very noteworthy most of the time. Are you with me? Stay with me. Look up here. They're not very noteworthy most of the time, but Jehovah is noteworthy. Amen? He, he is their glory. And we can say it this way. He is the most prominent feature of Israel. <laughs> this is the glory of Israel. And what about Him do we notice here? Well, we notice here that He doesn't lie, it says. He doesn't lie. Not, not that He won't lie, but that He can't lie. He, he will not lie. He, he doesn't say one thing and then another. There, there is no variation, no shadow of turning in Him. Samuel, again, is establishing the doctrine of God's immutability right here for us. So excited about that. He also goes on to say he's not a man. Right? He's not a man. That's an important truth, by the way. God is not some exalted man. He's not just some higher uh, uh, created being. He's not a man. He's the Creator. Very distinct from man, right? Man lies. Man changes his mind. God's mind is fixed. Man gets old, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Man reacts, God acts. Man changes his plans, God establishes his. Man adjusts to circumstances, God determines destiny. I think Samuel is purposeful in putting this here. He's giving us a framework to help us, I think, understand who God is and to view the rest of God's feelings in this chapter. He goes on to say, God is not a man that he should lie or have regrets. There's that word. I mentioned to you last time, it is the, it is the Hebrew word Naham. It can be translated to repent, uh, to be sorry, uh, to regret, as it is here. Some translations may say, like the New King James or the King James may say relent. You may have heard that word before. I, I think most of us hear, hear verse 11 and think it sounds a little strange to say that God repents or regrets anything. But then you hear verse 29, and it seems even more odd to hear that he regrets and that he doesn't have regret. Does it seem odd to you? And so we have to listen. We just have to listen to the text. Because let me say this right up front. You ready? Both statements are true of God. I mean, they can't be anything other than that, right? Both statements are true about God. And, and, and I, listen, I may not relieve all of your anxiety about this, right? I'm I, I mean, found that it's okay. It's okay sometimes to wrestle with mysteries about our God as long as we're doing that in faith. That is, to have an honest belief in God while we're searching for understanding of these deep and wonderful, profound things about our God. Uh, it, it is a little surprising, I think, to read verse 11 for the first time. The, the Creator, the unchanging God, the one who knows the end from the beginning, His wisdom is unsearchable. He regrets, or he's sorry, that He made Saul king over Israel. The verb Nahum occurs, I think, I think I said 20 times last week, but it's actually 29 times in the Old Testament with God Himself as the subject. There's a certain feeling element. If you go back and you read those references to God relenting or God repenting or God regretting, there's an emotional, if you will, or a feeling element to these words. The feeling of sorrow, the feeling of regret, the feeling of grieving. 
And I just want to take you back to at least one of the references. That is Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And you may remember back there in Genesis chapter 6, it says about man that every thought, every intent of his heart was only on evil continually, the Scripture says. And, here, and here's, this, here's this word being used in this context. It says in, in chapter 6 verse 6, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth. Listen to this. And it grieved Him to His heart. The NIV says this, uh, the nearly inspired version, some of you will say. His heart was filled with pain. His heart was filled with pain. Or in the ESV, it grieved Him to His heart. Can, Can you hear that? Now, 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 some people might object. I mean, how can God be so grieved over something He knew would happen? Do you understand? Did He know? Did God know that Saul would rebel? Yes. Did God know that the people of the earth would would come, would come a time in human history when they would all rebel, when they would all be have their minds set on evil continually? Certainly, He knew. This was no surprise to God. And, and so, so, so some people will look at that and say, well, well, well you know, if we're going to be clever theologians, I mean, we, we need to answer with some sesquipedalian words. <laughs> that just means big words. And, and so we might use words like, uh, like anthropomorphism. Like this word regret is, is sort of attributing to God uh, human characteristics. Or, or anthropopathism. That is attri- attributing human emotion to God. And, and I mean, that may, may help us a little bit to kind of, to kind of put, this, put this in sort of a category, but it doesn't help us to get to the meaning. I mean, that just helps us to kind of to say, you know, sometimes we have to make an accommodation. Sometimes we have to, 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 to get down to, to little human minds to help us understand about deity. This is using human language and human characteristics to help our, 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 our small thinking to understand this great God. I mean, sometimes we just don't have enough words, right, to describe God or how He feels or acts about a certain thing. And granted, I think this is true here. This is, a, this is an accommodation, if you will. Sometimes we don't have categories to put God in. He's not a man, remember that? But we're stuck with man's language to describe one who is not a man. Do you get it? Yeah. I mean, think about... I mean, even in the Gospels, when the great God-man came to earth, you remember? They couldn't put Him in a category either. They didn't have enough word. They didn't have enough vocabulary. Remember Mark chapter 4, when Jesus speaks to the storm, and, and, and there's this great calm. They were once afraid of the storm. Now they're afraid of Jesus. What do they say? Oh, what manner of man is this? But even the wind and waves obey Him. They didn't have enough vocabulary. They didn't have enough categories. They didn't have enough illustrations to say, this is, this is what He's like. This is, this is who He is. No, He's in the category all by Himself. And this is the same way, isn't it? God, God's the same way. It's the same way here. Mm. We just don't have enough words sometimes. But you don't want, ever want to explain away the character or the actions of God just because we don't have enough words. Do you understand? We can't just dismiss God with a theological word like anthropopathism. We still have the text. It still has something to say about Him that we need to listen to very carefully. He's not just trying to... Uh, when we use words like, I, I don't want to just sort of satisfy your curiosity. I don't want to just fill you with some kind of intellectual head knowledge. God, God's saying something about Himself. There is a truth that comes with the word Regret. Listen to the words again in Genesis chapter 6. It grieved him to his heart. 
I, I hope you can, can sense the intensity of God's sorrow over human sin. Do you understand? I think verse 11 ought to move us beyond the problem of words, beyond a, a theological category of anthropomorphisms. It, it ought to tell us something about how God feels about sin, about how He feels about rebellion. This is a tragedy. I think that Saul is no longer a disciple of Jehovah God. And God is grieved over the whole matter of Saul's disobedience. God is not casual about Saul's sin. He doesn't say, oh, you win some, you lose some. Oh, you know what? I knew this would happen. Let's just move on to David. No, it's not like that. Nowhere in Scripture do we learn about an attribute of God being cold about sin or cavalier about sin, or nonchalant about sin. Verse 11, and let, me, let me say this, and, and let me just kind of say this. I've, I've, I've tried to write this down in a way that I hope will be, make sense, but verse 11 is not a verse that communicates to us a God who is erratic, who is inconsistent, who is fickle, but communicates to us a God that feels deeply about human sin. It's not a verse about God being frustrated over a lack of foresight, but God grieved over Saul's disobedience. Samuel is not, is not the only one who mourned over Saul, remember? Yeah. I mean, and doesn't the New Testament confirm this truth when it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? And how do we do that, by the way? We do that through sin, don't we? Yeah. The way this chapter is written is on purpose. The human words it uses are purposeful words, divine words. Let me be clear to say that. These are, these, this is the Word of God, by the way. <laughs> these, are, these are words, I think, that stand out on purpose. These are words in bold because they tell us something about how God feels. This is, this is supposed, to, I think, to get our attention. We, we didn't know that the God of the Bible is not a cold slab of concrete who is not moved by our willful rebellions against Him. There are, I think, and let me, moving on, let me, let me just kind of mention to you a couple of dangers that I see here for us. A couple of dangers, a couple of little landmines that we want to avoid. First, I think as, as, as good Calvinists, that, that, we, that we don't explain this away with theological terms. Do you understand? That, that, that present God as sort of feelingless and cold toward human sin. Presenting Him with, with human language, but then redefining the language to where God has no feeling at all. He's sort of like this sort of AI robot that has this pre-programming that just sort of spits out these responses at the appropriate time. That's not God. That's not God. I think there's a real danger in that. Hmm. We used to use a, a word in theology called impassable or impassibility. It's, a, it's an aspect of God's immutability that means, it, it means that, 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 that God is, is free from human passion, right? Uh, it, it's an aspect, again, of His, of his unchanging character. He, 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 he doesn't have, if we could say it this way, He doesn't have emotions like we have emotions. He, he doesn't feel pain like we feel pain. Nothing outside of him affects his moods or alters his emotion. Whatever those feelings are in God. God is free from human passions again. 
theologians used to during World War II to talk about people suffering in concentration camps or people suffering in the gallows or in gas chambers. They used to say things like to these people that were suffering, that God's with you, that God's suffering with you in the gas chamber or God's suffering with you in the gallows or God's suffering with you in the, in the concentration camps. They thought it might ease the pain, I guess, to think that God sort of shared in it. But I want to. I want to. I would like to argue, but that the exact opposite of that is true, right? That that that's not that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the way God presents Himself. And and I and I think that we can take comfort in the fact that God is not affected by our suffering. Do you understand what I mean by what I, what I mean by that? Is in, in every act of our suffering, in every act of our our trials or whatever it is that we're going through, God is going to be constantly caring. God is going to be consistently loving. This is why we can say something like God is love. Not that, not that just God loves, but God is love. It is a part of His unchanging character. Do you understand? Yeah. This is not the God of the Bible, that God that sort of shares in our pain in that, in that sense. God determines His own acts and His own feelings. Nothing outside of Him does that. But that doesn't mean that God is stoic. It doesn't mean that God is lifeless. It doesn't mean that God is indifferent or apathetic and incapable of love or compassion. And and I think that's unfortunately all too common caricature of God. Actually, impassibility uh, ensures just the opposite. God could not be more alive and more loving than He is eternal or any other aspect of His character. This is why we can say, again, God is love. We, we, we can be confident of that. When things are going well, when things aren't going so well, God is the same. He cares. <laughs> Whatever this word regret means in this context, we have to believe that it is a perfect regret. Do you understand? It is a planned regret. It is a regret initiated in God and not determined by Saul's disobedience but that it reveals a consistent and unchanging aspect of God's character and feeling toward sin. God always feels the same way about sin. Yeah. Particularly the sin of His people. We don't want to present God as cold and dead. God greatly cares how we act. But there is a second danger, and that is that we present God as this sort of, this sort of volatile, unstable God who vacillates back and forth with His feelings based on what we do down here. Uh, a sort of a reactionary God, a sort of a, a barely a God, right? Uh, that we present Him like the, the Roman gods or the, or the, or the Greek gods who are so uh, emotionally unstable, uh, as emotionally unstable as the people that they claim to be superior to, right? Yeah. God is simply reacting. God is simply just uh, responding to Saul. I mean, that kind of God seems like trouble to me. I think we need to be careful. You're not quite sure what to expect from that kind of God. What kind of mood is He in today? We just don't know, right? I mean, He may not even know, right? That kind of God. We've established, listen, that our God isn't like that. Our God doesn't change. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. He is the God who cannot waver in His judgments, in His character, and yet is alive with care for His creatures. This regret reveals God cares deeply. Amen?
<laughs> and so again, again, this regret is revealing something about how God feels about sin. God is grieved about Saul's sin. A planned feeling, something originating in God Himself, not something brought on by something outside of Him. But I don't want to downplay the word. God is acting in perfect grief over Saul's sin. So how now do we reconcile verse 29 with verse 11? Look at verse 29 once again. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Samuel seems to be emphasizing to Saul that the Lord's word in verse 28, let's read that again, verse 28 says, Um, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who was better than you. Yeah. So this is Samuel emphasizing to Saul the Lord's word in verse 28. It is about his rejection, right? it's, It's not a mere threat. In other words, God just isn't isn't threatening Saul, but you know somewhere he's going to kind of pull that 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 threat back. No, he's not threatening here. There is an irrevocable decision happening. God does not go back and forth in his decisions. He's not a man. He's not playing mind games with Saul. God is not using theological scare tactics for Saul. God's purpose stands. He will not have regret about his decisions. His regret in verse 11 is his grief over Saul's sin. His not having regret in verse 29 is about his decision to tear the kingdom from Saul. Do you understand? Yeah. And again, this this is, I think, the best human language can do. The best we can do. God had a purpose for making Saul king. He had a purpose in Saul's failure. He had a purpose in Saul's rejection and in his own regret about Saul's apostasy. And now he has a purpose in his non-regret about his decision to now tear the kingdom from Saul. I like what one writer said. He says, says, uh, God is not an emotional yo-yo. I like that. Verse 29 uh, carries the same idea of what uh, my brother... Jonathan read just a few moments ago from Numbers chapter 23, uh, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Mm-hmm. Now you may remember as he read that a few moments ago, this is the story of Balaam, the prophet for hire, where he assures Balak that if God has decreed to bless Israel as he has, no highly paid prophet equipped with the latest and best sacrificial hanky-panky is going to do anything to change that. Jehovah has torn the kingdom from Saul and that is definite. God is not going to change his mind. It is established. It is unalterable truth. That's what he's saying. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. The Lord won't change His mind about Saul's rejection. That's what it means. And yet the writer won't let us forget verse 11, will he? (laughs) Because he mentions it again where? In verse 35. The Lord was sorry or regretted that He had made Saul king over Israel. There's still still the the paradox. And 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 I'll just go ahead and say this. I'm okay with God standing where He is. I hope you are. He is the God who regrets... And He is the God who will have no regret. <laughs> I mean, he, he is. He, he's the consistent, the unchangeable God of verse 29. And He's the sorrowful God of verse 35. And, 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 he's, and he's the God of, who's worthy of praise for it. Amen? Yeah. I mean, here He is. 
Our God who is not unstable, He's not changeable, He's not fickle, nor is He indifferent to my sin and yours. Here He is, right? He is both firm and He's feeling. And we ought to praise Him for it. (laughs) This is who He is. We may not comprehend Him, on, I think, on a, on a level that is perfectly accurate, but I hope I've given you enough. I hope He's opened our eyes enough that we can adore Him, that we can just praise Him just the way He is, the one who grieves over human sin and the one who will not change concerning His decisions. He's firm and He's feeling all praise to God. Amen? Yeah. Hmm. Well, we've seen this, haven't we? The mission of death... Saul go and devote the destruction to the uh, uh, devote to destruction the Amalekites. We've seen the priority of obedience to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, the, uh, the to listen is better than the fat of rams. We've seen the, the the trouble of regret. God regretted that He made Saul king over Israel, and He had no regret from removing him. So this is it. So let me come to the last part of this chapter and hopefully finish this up for you. And I want to just kind of combine these last two little points here. That is the severity of judgment and the tragedy of estrangement. The severity of judgment and the tragedy of estrangement. This is found in verses 32 to 35. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he would made Saul king over Israel. The severity of his judgment and the tragedy of estrangement. Samuel says, bring, bring Agag. And we come to the end of this, this, this uh, little scenario, this real ugly chapter here. Remember, God had ordered his death. Remember that? In the first part of the chapter, according to God, he was to be executed. He was not to be left alive. Saul had left him alive. And evidently, had left him, long enough for, uh, left him alive long enough for him to breed. And let me say this, some people should not be allowed to breed. Um, and I know some of you may be shocked by that, but it's true. It's interesting that several centuries later at the time of the Babylonian exile, um, and later the, the, the Persian rule, that a man by the name of Haman, who opposed Mordecai um, um, and the Jewish people, that he wanted to exterminate the Jews. He's called, Haman is called an Agagite. An Agagite. According to Jewish historians, Haman was a direct descendant of who? Of Agag. Yeah. Well, it's hard to be too dogmatic sometimes about history, but we do know that Saul had left some of the Amalekites alive. You can actually go to chapter 30 and see David has to deal with some of them there in chapter 30. Some of them are going to show back up there in a fight with David. You know, God is always right in His judgments about people, isn't He? Always. Always. And it's going to come back to haunt them there. But Samuel says, "Bring, uh, bring Agag to him. My ESV says he comes cheerfully. Uh, again, I think the LSB says in change. Some others' uh, translation may say haltingly. Uh, the Hebrew's not clear. But one thing's clear Agag was not expecting what was getting ready to happen. In fact, he says, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Whatever his attitude or his character was there, he didn't expect it. Samuel tells him his sin and then proceeds to carry out what Saul had failed to do. If Saul, had been, uh, if Saul had been really repentant, I mean, this would have already been done, right? Yeah, the, the, this is, this is uh, how do I say this? this? This is uncensored reality, isn't it? I mean, this is harsh. 
There's no quiet lethal injection. There's no slowly going, going to sleep to wake no more. This is no romantic Romeo and Juliet kind of death, is it? No, 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 no romantic death for Agag. I mean, this is harsh. This is severe. This is gory death. I mean, he's showing the holy wrath of God. And by the way, he's in no way ashamed of it. In fact, if you notice those words there in that last, last, uh, last part of the chapter there, it says, it is before the Lord. I think that's, that's key there. It's before the Lord. God is watching, and by the way, approving of the act. I mean, this, this may have been a, a part of his struggles the night when he was told about Saul's disobedience and rejection. Remember, he cried all night, pleaded before the Lord. He was angry, the Bible says. Yeah. Sin always brings death. And oftentimes, listen, it brings messy death. And let's not forget, I mean, what awaits Agag is far worse than what Samuel could ever do to him. Yes. Far worse. Hmm. Samuel is killing Agag and killing him in the most extremely explicit manner in the service of Jehovah. And let's, and, and let's be careful here how we feel about it. Let me, let me just say this to you. It, it, is, it is hypocrisy on the highest level that modern man can unflinchingly be entertained by countless acts of fictional murder and then criticize Samuel for one single act of a righteous judgment of God. But here it is. Whether we like it or not, whether we approve of it or not, God doesn't clean it up for us, does He? Here it is. Sin's death is horrifyingly graphic no matter how it comes for the wages of sin, what is death. And so we come to the the end, I guess, of this whole messy chapter and we see some geography. Samuel goes to Ramah, but Saul goes to Gibeah. But this is not about geography. It, it, It is about a tragedy, I think. The Lord's fellowship with Saul through the prophet has been severed. No more direction from the Lord through Samuel. No no more wise counsel. No more commands. No more encouragements from the one who has the ear of Jehovah himself. Samuel doesn't see Saul again until the day of his death. I think that's a tragedy, folks. Without the Lord's prophet, Saul is left without the Lord's word. I mean, can there there be a, a, a greater tragedy than for God to stop talking to us? For God to stop speaking to us? Some might accuse God, listen, of being cold about the whole thing, but that's not true. We have verse 35, don't we? God's not cold about the whole thing. I was talking to a woman not not long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she was talking about her abusive father, alcoholic abusive father, and how her father didn't speak to her for eight years while she lived in the house with him. Eight years. That's cold. That's sinful. But our God isn't like that. Our God isn't like that. Do you understand? Listen, it is certainly a great tragedy a great tragedy. The worst thing that can happen to man or woman in this life or the life to come is to be cut off from fellowship with our God. How awful is that? They have no word, no fellowship. But our God isn't apathetic about that. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, the Bible tells us. This chapter ends with the prophet grieving and God regretting. This is undiluted, prophetic, and divine sorrow about the whole mess. Samuel is grieved by what grieves the Lord. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. It's a horrible, horrible ending. And let's not pretend that, that this danger is not for us today when we say, oh, that's just, that's just Saul. 
No, listen, Jesus warned about this in Mark chapter 4, verse 24, when He said this, He said, Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. According to Jesus, the word of the Lord can be taken away. You remember the parable of the sower? It's only some of that seed that falls on fertile soil and grows. Those are the, I think Eric pointed this out Wednesday. I mean, this, these are the only ones who are true believers. But some of the seed goes what, uh, by the wayside. Who, who comes and steals it? The Satan does. Uh, some, some of it dries up. It doesn't have any root. You know, the, the, the trials come, difficulties come. It just dries up. It has no root. Some of it's choked out by the cares of the world. Most of the seed, what? It's taken away. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. Whoever you are today, Christ's kingship demands full heart submission. We've taken a long time to cover this chapter, and I don't want us to lose sight of the original theme that that I introduced you to back there in verses 1 and 2. Listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord, remember? I mean, this is the matter, I think, that matters most in this chapter. Obedience to the word of the Lord, that's it. I'm not asking you today, listen, to try, try out Christ's benefits, but to trust body and soul to the Lord Jesus. Christ is Lord. If you would be delivered from the bonds of your sin, you must come to Him in repentance. True repentance. No bargaining, no excuses, just unconditional surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, King Jesus. Sovereign of the universe demands our allegiance. If you would be saved from His wrath which is coming, I plead with you, man, woman, boy, girl, be reconciled to God. Look to the folly of a Roman cross and see where He paid the penalty of sin. Look to the foolishness of an empty tomb and see where He conquered death. And He rose victorious as a Lord, right? And you don't make Him Lord, by the way. He is Lord. He just is. And He demands every soul, if you would be saved, repent and believe. You must repent and you must believe to be saved from your sin. Well, in the next chapter, we're going to see God will make a new choice. And and, and a choice of one whom He will not regret making. For from Him will come one who will be King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. I hope that it's given some clarity. And um, if not, uh, I know uh, uh, Brother Eric and Jonathan will answer all your questions. Let's pray together and we'll um, take a break. Father, we are we're grateful for Your Word. Lord, your, your unchanging Word and Your unchanging character. Father, I pray that I've presented You as You are, that I haven't juggled words to make You more palatable to our sensibilities, Lord. You're God, and there is no other. Thank You for being, for being You. With all Your complexities, all Your surpassing beauties, we acknowledge, Lord, our great need for You, You, you alone. Forgive, God, our sins. Grant to us true repentance. Please, God, do not take Your Word from us. We need You. We need Your fellowship. We need Your tender mercies. 
Thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. It is through Jesus our Lord that we make our requests. Amen.